Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased that you've been able to join us for the program. Those in government serve for the benefit of a society. There are very few people in the country who don't have an opinion on our political leaders. We all have expectations of how they should behave and what their role is. There are things that our government leaders should promote, some they should permit and some they need to prohibit. Where do we get those ideas from? Well, for a closer look at the role of political leadership, let's join Dr Corbett in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, for what God wants of kings. We are going to be dealing with Jeremiah. And as we, as we do, we're, we're up to that part in Jeremiah where he's going to be rebuking the, the political leaders of his land for increasing taxation and giving themselves a pay rise. <laughs> Not that that might at all be relevant for where we're at today. So let's have a look at this text. We're reading from verse 11 of chapter 22. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. I need to make a couple of points about this. Firstly, Shalom was not the king's name. Shalom kind of um, is, is a play on the word shalom. Shalom is the word peace. You, you, you hear that word, shalom, peace. Shalom is no peace. Shalom is, is kind of the, the opposite of peace in the sense of... Um, there's, there's not, not terror, but there's, there's trepidation. So this king was given this name. Now, his, his actual name was Jehoiaz. Jehoiaz. Now, the interesting thing about Jehoiaz is that he was not in line to be king. His brother Elkiah was. And Elkiah was the older brother, and, and his younger brother had wooed the people of uh, Judah, southern Israel, and they said, we want him to be king. And so he was made king more or less out of a popular vote. Elias, he wasn't that happy about this. Like him, he wasn't that happy about this. So... He actually protested to Pharaoh in Egypt about the injustice and made a deal with Pharaoh. You know, if you help me get my throne, um, I'll pay you X money. <clears throat> so the result was that Pharaoh came in and deposed Shalom, took him away to uh, Egypt, having only served as king for three months. But there's something else going on here too. If you know the history of the kings of southern, southern Israel, Judah, you know that the, the, the most wicked king described in the Bible is King Manasseh. Toward the end of his life, he did a couple of things. He had a son called Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah late in his life. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and basically grew up without the influence of his dad. He grew up with influence, the influence of Bible teachers. 
And he became one of the most righteous kings. Now here's my point, and it's, a, it's not a small point, it's a big point, and it's going to tie in with everything we are about to look at. Josiah was a good king, one of the best. Josiah came at a time when, when Judah needed a, a, a lot of reform. There was a lot of really bad stuff going down. He, he did an incredible job, cleaned it up. Died very young, died at about the age 38, 39. But in the process, he had his two boys quite young and he didn't father them. And as I think about this, I could imagine, well, he could probably justify it by saying he's got the affairs of state to look after. He's got a nation to run. You can't expect him to be king and be a father at the same time, can you? And my answer to that is, yes, I think you can and you should. And I've heard parents say, and if I had the time we'd unpack this, I've heard parents say some of the dumbest things when it comes to parenting their children into spiritual things. Dumb things like this. We are not going to tell our children what they should believe. We're just going to let them make up their mind about God. Now, when you say that, you are not letting your children make up their mind about God. You are teaching them a very profound thing. And in his book, uh, J. Bujashevsky, uh, he says there's about seven things a parent actually teaches their child when that is their attitude to parenting. We are not going to tell our children about God. We're going to let them form their own opinion about God. We're not going to force our beliefs on our children. That is dangerous. I reckon that's, that's a devilish thought. Now, I know that's not politically correct to say that because the little darlings should be allowed to self-discover. I know that. But when you say that, you say, my belief in God is not that important. Find one for yourself because mine's not that big a deal. You've actually taught them that. When a parent says that to their child, they're also saying any belief in God will do. They're all equal. That is really not true. It violates the first of the two of the Ten Commandments. We could go on and look at this. Anyway, you get the idea. Josiah did not father his two boys. They ended up being wicked. And wicked does not mean bad. It's a special kind of bad. Wicked means you know exactly what's right and you choose not to do it. So we now end up with this guy, Jehoiakim, who's called by Jeremiah Shalom, who's taken away to Egypt. And so will he return? He went away from this place. He shall return here no more. That's what he's talking about. He was taken to Egypt and he never did return. Verse 12, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die and never see this land again. Verse 13. So now his brother, Eliakim, is made king by Pharaoh, but he's renamed Jehoiakim. So I know there's a lot of names happening here, but I'm, I'm trying to give you a a bit of a picture. So Jehoiakim is king who's been called Shalom. And this is Jeremiah's beef with him. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbour serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. I think that's Leviticus 
1913, something like that, directly tells kings not to do that. Verse 14, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. And this is what Jehoiakim was doing. He was actually building himself a palace out of cedar, which was a pretty big deal. Who cuts out windows for it, panelling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. In, in Bible times, vermilion was, was actually almost a silver colour. This, this guy is, is on an ego trip and Jeremiah is calling him up on it. How is this relevant for today? Well, we've got Jeremiah speaking to somebody who was more or less democratically elected because he lied to the population and he was removed. Do we ever see that today? (laughs) Um, He was replaced by somebody who who only wanted the position for himself, for his own power, his own wealth, and he cared nothing for the people he was exercising government over. Do we see that today? Arguably, we do. So here's a point that that we're going to draw out from Scripture, and it's this. Those in government serve for the benefit of a society. Those in government serve for the benefit of a society. I think this is one of the one of the, the things that the gospel brings to a nation, that you, you serve others because in serving others, you're honouring God. Now, we, we just take that for granted. And when, when it doesn't happen, we're a little bit outraged, and so we should be. But this is a radical concept. It is a radical concept. It's this concept that that has a culture that, that says it's wrong to take a bribe. It's wrong. Don't do it. And there are, there are politicians who are offered bribes who, out of conscience sake, would, would refuse that bribe. And, and I hope there's, there's more of that happening than the alternative. But... There are some cultures where the gospel has never got, hasn't yet got traction and offering a bribe is how government is done. And we need the gospel to go into these countries, into African countries where they don't quite get it. But man, we've got to make sure we maintain it here. Those in government serve for the benefit of a society. Not for their constituents, not for those who elected them in their electorate, but overall. We're back in verse 15. Do you think you are king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? So this is a reference to King Josiah, one of the most righteous kings. Then it was well with him. In other words, do... Do what is right and things will go well. Verse 16. This is what Josiah did and this is the cry of the prophet to his son Jehoiakim. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? 
He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Now, we're going to hear that today and we're going to go, yes, we should give more government handouts to the needy. That's what Jeremiah's talking about. No, he's not talking about that at all. There weren't any government handouts in Jeremiah's time. This is not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that the poor and the needy were oppressed. How were they oppressed? They were charged exorbitant interest rates, which they couldn't pay. And because of that, they, they had to sell themselves. Slavery in Bible times is not like the picture you and I generally have of slavery. And so when we read the word slavery in the Bible, we're sometimes thinking of black African American slavery. And that's not the slavery the Bible's talking about. The kind of slavery it's talking about is paying off a debt. That's what it is, paying off a debt. You couldn't pay a debt, you were sold into slavery. There was a seven-year time where an employer could extract from you your service to repay your debt to that person. So the cause of the poor and the needy was to, was to make sure that those people that were unreasonably, illegally oppressing them was dealt with. Verse 17. But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. So it, it, it begs the question, I think, what should government do? What should government do? I think there's essentially three broad categories of things that government should do. And here they are. Firstly, they should promote some things. Governments should promote some things. How do governments promote things? They use legislation to promote it. They, they, they pass laws that promote certain things. Um, things, that, things that should be promoted are things that are good for us. And I remember that when seatbelts were introduced, <clears throat> um, the cars that I, I recall driving in with my parents as a child didn't even have seatbelts. So all cars had to be fitted with seatbelts. And I remember thinking that here I am, I'm a kid, I'm now getting in a car, it's got a seatbelt. And I've seen the TV ads. They, they were showing people going through windscreens. They were showing car crashes. This is back in black and white television days and it was still pretty gruesome. So I'm thinking as a kid, I get into this car now, it's got, a, got the seatbelt thing. I'm thinking, oh, I know what happens if you don't wear a seatbelt. I'm going to put my seatbelt on. I've got to tell you, the, the, the knowledge that it was now law was probably not high on my priority. It's law, therefore I should put it on. No, I, it was law because it was going to save my life. It was law because it was going to do me good. And we, I remember in, in primary school we had education classes on the value of seatbelts and how kids, you need to get in the car and put your seatbelt on. But there are some things governments promote because they're good for us. So I think seatbelts is one of them. Um, governments should promote certain things. Do you realise children raised in a low-conflict loving home with their married mother and father, of all the sociological research, doesn't matter what country, what culture, what time, children always fare best emotionally, physically, materially, academically, uh, psychologically when raised in that type of home. Therefore, governments should promote that type of home. Low-conflict. Loving, married mum and dad. Governments should promote that. <laughs> Sounds like we're being political today, doesn't it? It's like... Governments, however, should also permit those things 
which although they may not be good for society, they're not able to practically regulate. Not able to practically regulate. Now I'm going to give a silly example. It's a silly example. Just to make a point. I don't think eating glass is good for you. But, for example, what if someone said to the parliament, I think eating broken glass is really bad for someone's health. Who in parliament's going to disagree? That's, of course. Well, we should pass a law against it. Okay. Now, it's illegal to eat broken glass. How are you going to regulate that? How, how are you going to regulate it? Knock, knock, knock at the door. Hello, we're the glass police. So. All the glass accounted for. Open your mouth. Um. There are some things governments just have to permit because the regulation of those arguably harmful things is just impractical. Um, having just said, children raised in a low-conflict, loving home by their married mother and father is what is always best for a child. What about a child raised in a home where the parents aren't married? That's called de facto. Now, we know that's not best, so should, should we prohibit that? No, you, you permit it, because it's just too hard to, just, just, it's too hard to regulate that. If, if, you know, some things you just got to let go. All right, so some things should be regulated, permitted, even though they may not be beneficial. Then, I've given a bit of a clue here, some things should be prohibited because we know that they are harmful. We know they're harmful. Um, such things as illicit drug use we know is harmful. Therefore, it should be prohibited. I am staggered that there are people that are applying the second principle to this principle. Um, if you take the idea that, well, if you can't control it, you should permit it, then we should really apologise to every murderer and car thief because there, we have laws against murder and laws against car theft and that doesn't seem to stop it from happening either. You see what I'm saying? There are some things that are wrong and they should be prohibited even if it is a huge effort to legislate it. All right, that's what there's three things government should do. But there's something else overarching this, and, and that's this. Good government is about justice and fairness for all its citizens. And this is partly what Jeremiah is saying. The rich are getting richer because they're being unjust. They're being unfair to people, and the king should do something about it. And governments need to make sure that there's justice, that the poor have opportunities just like everyone else has opportunities, that there's fairness. Now, having said that, let me kind of bring this to a conclusion. And this is, I want to make a couple of, I think, profound points that you may not agree with, but this is one. How should Christians treat those in government? Now, I'm going to say this and I'm probably going to upset mm, quite a few people. So let me talk to my Australian friends. If you send me a satirical picture ridiculing our Prime Minister, I'm not going to like it on Facebook. I'm not going to pass it on. I'm not going to show anybody. 
because I don't think that's how the Bible instructs me to treat our Prime Minister. That's not an opinion on whether I think she's doing a good job or bad job, but I think Scripture has something to say to me about how I talk about our Prime Minister. Where am I getting this from? Well, it's grounded in Exodus 28, uh, sorry, 22, 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And the Apostle Paul quotes this in the New Testament. Acts 23, verse 5, when he said something about the high priest, he actually cites this verse. He says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We as Christians need to pick up our game with this and show some respect. The Bible says this, we, we should not be in fear of our government. How should we treat government? How should Christians treat government? Well, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, it says in Romans 13, verse 3, but to bad. Would you have no, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. So I think it's important that we treat government not only with respect, but we also do what is right. What if you're here now and you sense a call to be in public life, to be a state politician, a federal politician, or even a local government councillor? What should you do? Having said, you know, these are some of the things that governments are responsible for. Well, God knows we need more people who understand God, his word, in these positions. We do. And a lot of people say, you as a Christian can't speak into this because you're biased. Well, what's the atheist? Unbiased? The atheist is just as biased, but in exactly the opposite direction. And we do need Christians who, who will be able to offer good reasoning in these things. Because if you understand and... Uh, this week I, I posted something in, uh, in utter disappointment of Channel 7. They are going to be airing a program which they've now abbreviated to GCB and it ridicules Christian women. Someone said, oh, look, if you don't like it, just turn the TV off. And, and my point there in response to them was, I used to think like that, but now I realise that the ideas that shape society eventually affect me. I tell you what, it becomes very hard as a pastor to stand up here and say marriage is the only place God has ordained for sexual activity when you've got TV programs promoting promiscuity as quite normal. And so these things ultimately do affect us all. So we need perhaps a different way of thinking. So is God calling you to serve as a politician? Pray about that. Present your life to God, and maybe God will promote you into a place of political power. But what about us? We bring this to a close. Here's Jeremiah saying to the king, you've oppressed the poor, you've lined your own pocket, you haven't cared about people. And so as Christians, we need to love justice and compassion. We need to, we need to stand up for the rights of people. We need to do that. The psalmist said in Psalm 101, verse 1, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. This was a point not just of love, but of song. In Jeremiah 9:24, we sang this song this morning, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who 
which is not part of the song, but the last part of the, the verse says this, practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this is where we, as God's people, need to love justice and compassion. And here's my concluding thought. Jeremiah is, going to, is in a sequence of addressing kings. And in, in the next chapter, he's going, to, he's going to introduce Jesus, King Jesus, as the ultimate king. When God gave the law through Moses, he gave 10 precepts. Those precepts were unpacked into, into over 500 laws. When Jesus came, he summarised the law into two statements, love God and love others. If you love God, you'll love your society. If you love God, you'll care about what your neighbour's watching on television. You'll care about the ideas that are infiltrating society around you because you love God. But between Moses and Jesus, there was this guy by the name of Micah and he put it this way. And this, I believe, is on the wall of the United Nations. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. Note those things. God requires of you justice. Do the right thing. Love kindness. Be kind to one another and walk humbly with God. And that's what God requires of political leaders as well. But it starts with you and me in our home transacting forgiveness with our spouse, with our children and teaching them the ways of God and to love God. Let's pray. Father, help us to be this kind of people who love you, who live for you, who serve you. Father, we pray for our governments. We pray for our political leaders, state, federal, even local, that, Father, you would give them wisdom, you would help them to know you, you would help them to love justice, love mercy. You would help them to have compassion on people and to serve for the greater good of society. Now, Lord, I pray for those listening to me now. And this talk of, of doing the right thing, this talk of being made right with God, this talk of forgiveness is foreign language to them. And I pray, Father, for them that, Lord, if there's someone here and, and they've never been forgiven of their sin, that, Father, you would reach out to them right now and reveal your love and forgiveness the love and forgiveness that you initiate and if you know that you are not at peace with God you are one prayer away from being made right with God not because of anything you do but because of what he has done one prayer that says oh God I receive your forgiveness please forgive me of my sin cleanse me from the inside out and help me to live for you I pray. Amen. Having heard that discussion on God's expectation of political leaders, how are you going to respond? More from Dr. Corbett on Jeremiah next week with an intriguing discussion, a divinely discarded signet ring. 
podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, What God Wants of Kings, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.